0: Good morning. You may turn in your Bibles as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, picking up in chapter 14. As you turn there, I'm going to ask a question. If you were to poll persons here in our country and go around and maybe just do an informal poll on the street and ask them, what is your greatest fear? What do you think the... Maybe the top couple of responses would be the answer in your head. You don't need to say it out loud. Number one is snakes. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to make some spiritual allusion to how that's ultimately a fear of Satan. But right behind that is the fear of public speaking. Now, why is that? Why do we fear getting up in front of and talking in front of others? you probably know the answer. Ultimately, the answer is a fear of man. We have a fear of what others think about us, of how they perceive us. Perhaps what is most ironic about this is we fear those who really oftentimes could care very little about us, don't really give us much thought after the fact. Hopefully, it's a little different this morning. But the reality is that we are governed and controlled by a fear of man. It manifests itself in the fear of public speaking where you have to get out up in front of others and you expect to be somewhat judged by others. But the fear of man really governs so much of life, so much of what we do, how we do it, what we say, how we go about things, how we frame what we say, the decisions we make or those that we don't make. Fear of man is really one of the most common spiritual ailments that we have brought on by sin. Ultimately, it's pride. It's wanting to look good in front of others, or we care very much about what others think about us and our perceived status in their mind. Persons will do bizarre things because of peer pressure and wanting to be accepted by others. And it really is interesting, the extreme measures that we will go to out of a desire to be thought well of by others, again, many of whom do not even care about us. And yet when it comes to obedience to Christ, to God, to the Father, to His Son who came and sacrificed His life for us out of a love for us, it's amazing how often we hesitate to obey. And I say we because I'm right there with you. I fall right into that same struggle, the same temptation, the same fear that has to be put to death on a regular basis. Why is it that we go to such great lengths to gain the affection of this world but hesitate when doing something for Christ because of some perceived discomfort or perception by others? This morning we're going to see really a compare and contrast between two persons, one driven by the fear of man, one driven by the love of God. We're gonna encounter the death of John the Baptist, a prophet who did not fear what people thought of him, quite the opposite. Why else would you dress in camel skin, eating locusts and honey. One whose sole concern was pleasing God. He's presented in stark contrast with Herod, who is completely controlled by his fear of others. We see that manifested over and over again in this short snippet. And our study this morning will remind us of the dangers of fearing man instead of God as we look at the consequences and we look at a life consumed by that type of sin and fear. But when contrasted with John, we should be motivated in our love and obedience of Christ, regardless of the consequences, real or perceived in this life. If you would, read along with me as I read out loud Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, "'This is John the Baptist.' He is risen from the dead. That, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, this was by the way, it was looking back now about a year in the past, when he had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been saying to him, "It is not lawful for you to have her." Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Let's pray as we enter into our time of study this morning, looking at John the Baptist. Father, we thank you for the words we've been reminded of, the truths contained within those words that we have been reminded of this morning as we have sung of the blessed assurance that is found in Christ as we look past to the cross, looking at the resurrection and the hope that is secured for us in heaven. Father, what a blessed assurance it is. Thank you for the words as we sang of all I have is Christ, and as that is so clearly exemplified in the life of John the Baptist, is that is all he cared about. Of all of his possessions, of all that he had, that is all that mattered Father, as we study this morning, as we look at this text, would we be rightly convicted where we allow the fear of man to control us, to influence our decisions where it should have little to no influence? Would we come away with a desire to humble ourselves and submit to your will in all areas of life? May we be motivated in our love for you. Would the fire of our affection be stirred? as we read the account of John the Baptist this morning and study it. In your name, amen. Matthew 13 ended with Jesus' visit to his hometown. However, as we were reminded, as we learned a few weeks ago before our Easter break, the unbelief and hardness of heart there amongst his fellow villagers, those many of whom he had grown up with, those who had observed him growing up, Their hard-heartedness and lack of belief led to a rather short stay by Jesus and very few miracles and signs being performed amongst them. In something of a contrast, chapter 14 opens with expanding the notoriety of Jesus because of those very signs, few of which were performed in Nazareth, but now many have been performed, and it has reached the ears of Herod. Jesus has several times told persons in his followers, those who he's healed, do not report yet what you have seen and what you have observed. The exact reason why Jesus provided those instructions early on in his ministry are not always clear. And it appears, in many cases, to have been little heeded by the people. Because here in chapter 14, word has now made its way to Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, was one of the sons of Herod the Great. As is the same Herod who sought to kill Jesus shortly after his birth. You remember the the Magi from the east arrived, bringing the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they first arrived, and they went to the capital. And they said, where is this king of the Jews? Well, this is the first time Herod the king had heard of it. He wasn't too pleased to hear there was another king. So he plotted to kill Jesus. he went so far you may remember in seeking to kill Jesus that he just to be thorough slaughtered every child in Bethlehem every male child in Bethlehem in an effort to destroy what he perceived to be a potential threat to his throne and you may remember in Matthew 2 the magi arrived and after delivering that news and after seeing Jesus they were warned in a dream by angels do not do not return to Herod. go another way Around that same time, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was also warned by an angel to flee Bethlehem for Egypt to escape the coming wrath of Herod the king. And it was there that they lived until the death of Herod, which would have been around 4 BC. After the death of Herod the Great, the kingdom was divided into several portions, and Herod Antipas was appointed one of the tetrarchs, or rulers, over the Roman province. He had this delegated authority. Antipas ruled in Galilee where Jesus most of Jesus' ministry has been up to this point, and then another section of land southeast of that on the eastern side of the Jordan River called Perea. Perea extended about two-thirds of the way down the Jordan River and then several miles to the east. It runs along the banks of the Jordan there, lush land before it proceeds toward the desert. Now, a, a tetrarch was a pretty low Roman ruler. I mean, it still had authority, it was still important, but it was fairly low as far as Roman rulers go. Romans would appoint first kings to rule under the emperor's authority over large swaths of land, often encompassing multiple nations. Under them, you would find ethnarchs, who often ruled a, maybe an individual nation or people group within that. And under the ethnarchs, you had the tetrarchs who ruled subsets of those people, groups, or nations. Several steps down the ladder as far as delegated authority goes. Not an unimportant position, but not the most important. And so we open with an introduction to this new Herod, this this Herod of lesser authority, the same Herod who reappears at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry with regard to his crucifixion and death. And while in verse 1 a great deal... When we open, we recognize that a great deal of this section concerns Herod and, ultimately, John the Baptist, the end of John the Baptist. We notice that in this introduction in verse 1, it does not start by focusing on John's martyrdom, but rather on Herod's attention, specifically his attention on Jesus. The emphasis... Even in the parenthetical that's given, even though Jesus is not explicitly mentioned, the entire emphasis of this section is on Jesus. Why would I say that? Well, what was John's very ministry? He was the forerunner, the herald of the Messiah, the one who came to announce, make straight the way of the Lord, the one who proclaimed that light has come, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles in the person of Jesus Christ. Note that it opens in verse one with a report about Jesus and concludes in verse 12, likewise with a report being given to Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way of Jesus. He was that herald, and it's here even in his death that we will see him calling attention to Christ, implicitly as it were, and acting as that forerunner. Several times in this little story, I say little just from a short brevity, it's very important, but even in this short story, Short explanation of John the Baptist's death, we see God's sovereign hand at work. Something that often is called the divine passive. Where it's, God is not mentioned explicitly, but is seen to be clearly at work. In fact, I want you to notice several parallels as we go through this with the story of Esther. A book, by, by the way, where God's name is not mentioned explicitly once. Where again, we see God sovereignly at work the entire time in that divine passive. And though there are similarities to the story of Esther, it is more by way of contrast than, than exact comparison. In verse two, Matthew provides commentary on the mental state of Herod Antipas. This was a man like his father, driven by paranoia and fear. Herod's fear in verse two is that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Interestingly, his reason for concluding that is because Jesus is working miracles. How many miracles did John the Baptist work in his ministry? You know the answer to this? None. Not one. And yet, the power that worked through the preaching and the ministry and the message of John the Baptist was with such force, such power, that he was considered a prophet, and it was so impactful that Herod, and others by the way, Mark tells us that there were others, Luke as well, that others were saying, this is Elijah risen from the dead, that the power that worked within him was so impressive and incredible that, they, that now when they started seeing miracles, they assumed that this had to be John the Baptist. The power and authority of his preaching led even the wicked observer to call him a righteous and holy man, according to Mark 6.20, and to recognize the power of God at work in him. In fact, the power of John's preaching and the obvious fact that he was a prophet sent from God leads Herod to conclude that John has been resurrected and is now performing miracles in this resurrected body. In addition, this conclusion about Jesus, this conclusion he reached, reveals something sinister about Herod, something we need to make an asterisk about, a note about. During John's life, Herod fully recognized the divine power working in John. He understood that this was a man a holy man, a righteous man, a man sent from God, a powerful man, a man that it would be no surprise to him if this man starts working miracles. And yet, still, he sought to suppress it, to murder John and remove him from the scene. This is what sin does. It can be faced with clear truth about God, undeniable truth about God, about the Creator, about the damage that sin causes, the obvious ugliness of it all, and yet refuse to submit to the truth of God's Word. You see, sin is not logical. There is no way to reason past a sinful mind. Sin does not simply bypass the mind and appeal to the flesh. Sin utterly corrupts the mind on its way to the flesh. Corrupts our thinking so that we cannot reason correctly, so that we call evil good and good evil. This is what Isaiah the prophet said regarding the effect of sin on one's judgment or intellectual capacity in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where Isaiah writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. It's really it's a perfect description of Herod that we've already read this morning. There's an additional point to note. Herod inadvertently testifies to the unified nature of the ministry of John and Jesus. His equating of the two, his seeing in the ministry of Jesus, John himself, highlights the continuity and congruity of their message and ministry, which we've observed several times since John the Baptist was introduced to us in chapter 3 of Matthew. They shared the same message and the same ministry. The only difference is that John came as the herald of this Messiah. But they both came preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They both came not seeking profit. They both came not seeking notoriety. They both came ministering in faraway places, outside of the major cities and palaces, but in the wilderness and on the hillsides, in houses. What Herod inadvertently does through his illogical fear is point everyone from John to Jesus. That's what he does. When he announces this is John risen from the dead, he's now got everybody wanting to go see John risen from the dead and who do they show up to find but Jesus himself. His declaration that Jesus must be John the Baptist risen from the grave now calls attention to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the very next scene we will see that we'll be looking at next week, what do we encounter? Jesus surrounded by massive crowds. That's no accident. This is, again, the sovereign hand of God at work in the sin of Herod and in sinful Herod. He brings greater attention to the ministry of Christ through Herod. Herod becomes an unwitting herald of the Messiah. Additionally, there's a tremendous irony in that not only does he point everyone to Jesus, but he becomes an unwitting prophet of Jesus' future resurrection from the dead that we celebrated last week. He, in fact, presides over that death at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry and crucifixion. Herod's fear is real but irrational. He regarded John as a prophet, so now he is afraid afraid that he has returned to torment him from the grave. That's who we're introduced to. This is Herod. What Matthew does next, after observing this fear and response of Herod, is to introduce a parenthetical, a description that looks back and summarizes the events that culminated in John the Baptist's death. Verse 3 drops us into the story where John is arrested by Herod. And we last saw John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. We recall that Jesus noted in Matthew 11:11 11, 11, that born among women there is no one has been or will be greater than John the Baptist. But now as we observe the sun setting on his earthly life, Like so many prophets before him, John finds himself persecuted and imprisoned. The immediate cause of his imprisonment is introduced to us at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. It is on account of Herod's new wife, Herodias, who had been the wife of his brother, Philip. It was an incestuous relationship. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, he wasn't talking about Roman law. Divorce was permitted in Roman law. It was even permitted in certain instances under Jewish law. When he said it is not lawful for you to have her, he's referring to the law of God, specifically the law of Moses given at Sinai. Leviticus 18.16, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, and it is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20.21, If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. Even some Romans turned turned their head from incestuous relationships, but all the more so for John the Baptist preaching to the man who ruled over Israel, calling him to repentance. The grammar here in verse four indicates that it wasn't just a passing comment by John. Oh, by the way, you should not do that. No, he became a thorn in his side as he preached continuously on repentance. He would regularly identify the sin of Herod, calling him openly, publicly, repent. Verse 5 next tells us that Herod desired to put him to death. If you're a despot, you don't take kindly to criticism. And even though verse 3 says the imprisonment was on account of Herodias, or because of Herodias, Herod had long wished to put John to death. He was a nuisance. But it wasn't just because he was attacking him over his violation of God's law. Quite honestly, for a sinner like Herod, one who was so consumed by his fleshly desired sin, that registered very little. Now, what appeals to him? Fear. Herod's reasons for wanting to put John to death were likely multifaceted. He was certainly intrigued by John. Mark even says he was somewhat amused by John that while he had John in prison, he would have him continue preaching and enjoyed or was amused at having him preach to him. But ultimately, John was throwing gasoline on an already volatile situation there in the ancient Near East. And it had to do with this divorce and this remarriage. Many of the Nabataeans had remained loyal to Herod's first wife, who was a Nabataean princess. And there were rumblings of political unrest because of his divorce of her. The Nabatean kingdom was on the eastern edge of Perea. In fact, its capital you may be familiar with the the fortress, that rock fortress of Petra. It was the capital of Nab- Nabatea, and they didn't didn't take kindly to the slight of their princess by his divorce of her in favor of Herodias, Philip's wife. Herod's first uh, marriage had been politically advantageous because it secured peace on that easternmost border of Perea. And, And remember now, so think about that, they're upset. Their princess has been shamed, been divorced, put aside. Now, where is John preaching? You remember his ministry? He was preaching beyond the Jordan. That is, to the east of the Jordan. Where is Perea? To the east of the Jordan. Where is Nabatea? To the east of the Jordan. He was out in the wilderness. John's ministry was right there in the midst of this political hotbed. And so while his focus was on the moral repercussions of what Herod has done, all Herod is concerned is the political repercussions of what he has done. The political unrest that is now being created and stoked. It's already there it's already rumbling but here comes this prophet yeah his purpose may be different but it's the same net result where now he's stoking the fires of these murmurings and these grumblings and these complainings on the eastern edge of my small little empire historians tell us that the Nabataeans never got over this slight to their princess several years later after this there was a border revolt that broke out they were actually incredibly successful they would have completely eliminated Herod's kingdom and taken it from him, or at least all of Perea, half of his kingdom, would have been ripped from him had not the Romans, when they realized Herod was losing, they couldn't lose face by letting their tetrarch lose, so they brought in the whole Roman army to settle it and restore order and give it back to Herod. So while John's rebuke of Herod was on account of his having violated God's law, Herod here is more concerned. His reason for wanting to put John to death is not only because he's rebuking him, but also there's political implications and unrest that John is likely creating among both the Jews and the Nabataeans. And for Herod, there's very little concern for God's judgment over his violation of God's commandments from Leviticus, but a great deal of concern over the political unrest. And so in this, we can note here that recurring theme of Herod. Herod is a man-fearer. He's not a man of conviction, certainly not one who fears God. Herod is weak and really is reminiscent of conflicted and weak King Ahab in the Old Testament. With Herodias serving as wicked Jezebel who kills the prophets. And like Elijah who confronted this wicked pair, John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah speaks against them in their sin. And ultimately, it costs him his life. But we note in John the Baptist no fear of man, fear only of preaching Repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 6, fast forward some time, whether weeks or months, we don't know, but it takes us up to Herod's birthday celebration and John is still in prison. Herod's celebration of his birthday was not a Jewish practice. It was a Hellenistic one. For Jews, celebration of one's birthday doesn't appear anywhere in ancient literature. But in non-Jewish settings, celebrating a birthday was, regularly, was a regular practice. In fact, we can see how ancient it was. Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, you remember that while Joseph is in prison, he meets two other prisoners, and they were in prison when? At the time of Pharaoh's banquet for his birthday. It was a common thing for a ruler, especially to hold a birthday celebration as an opportunity to show off. Herod was no exception. A man driven by pride, a man driven by what others thought about him, would have used this as an opportunity to show off as much as he could, to win and court as much favor as possible. And we see in verse 6 that the daughter of Herodias, Herod's stepdaughter, who we know from history was named Siloam, danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, the biblical text doesn't make any direct comment on the impropriety of the event, But it was very odd for a member of the royal family to perform at one of these drunken feasts. It was really uncouth. Normally it was hired dancers or slaves. But for a member of the royal family to perform, this is somewhat scandalous. And while Matthew and Mark are not explicit on this point by simply mentioning it, those who hear it, who are familiar with the context who understand what these parties are about are clued in to the obviously debauched nature of the whole event. Even further, it becomes clear that Herod was not in his right mind by the time he is introduced speaking to Herodias' daughter, Siloam. Herod, in what we can only assume is a drunken stupor, puts on the airs of an emperor. Why do I say that? Because even though we've noted he's a fairly lowly ruler, he's not even king, nor was he an ethnarch. He was a lowly tetrarch over a relatively small area on the far eastern side of the Roman Empire. Yet, as D.A. Carson notes, he imitated the grandiloquence of ancient Persian monarchs, as if he's the emperor of all of Persia, offering up to half his kingdom kingdom that wasn't even his to give away because he was a vassal ruler. He's making promises he has no ability to even deliver on, and yet he wants to sound like a grand emperor. His pride and arrogance, like his consumption of alcohol, apparently really knows no bounds. This scene here is also reminiscent of Esther, who appears before the king and finds pleasure with the king who, what does he do? He offers her, what? Up to half of his empire, the obvious difference being that Xerxes could actually fulfill that request. He was the emperor, he could fulfill such a grandiose offer, however, compared to godly Esther who when offered half the kingdom because she found the king's favor, used it to save and rescue the Jewish people, Herod's stepdaughter, Salome, uses her power for evil. The contrast created between her and Esther could not be greater. For one, it was the power of life, for the other, the power of death. Matthew records that Salome was prompted by her mother. Mark writes in Mark 6.24 that she went out to consult with her mother, stepped outside into the other room for a moment. She returns moments later with the gruesome request of John the Baptist's head on a platter. So how does, John, how does Herod respond to such a request? Just like we would expect a weak and fickle man driven by fear of others to respond. The grief that Matthew records Herod having, by the way, is not grief over the fact that he liked John so much he doesn't want to kill him. No, we already know he wants to put him to death. Matthew and Kirk recorded that back in verse 5. Herod's grief and trouble is over now he's going to have to deal with the fallout he'll have in dealing with the people who considered him a prophet. That's his concern. That's his grief. First, he was afraid to put him to death. Now he's afraid to not put him to death. In both cases, it's because of what people might think. He's grieved over the situation, not having no thought of John, but grief over what does this do to me? How hard is it going to make me to rule? What am I going to look like in the eyes of others? And we see that through the language here because of his guests. Herod is driven by sin, by his fear of his wife, by his fear of the people everything he does revolves around the fear of man and indulging his sin think ahead even to how he handles the crucifixion of christ what does he say i I know how i'll get out of this i'll offer him barabbas and jesus and then when it becomes clear they want barabbas he quickly washes his hand and says that's not me that's you he does everything he can to avoid accepting responsibility this man was so driven by what people thought of him that we, we see even Matthew notes that he adopted for himself the title king after his father's death even though Rome never conferred this title upon him in fact he was several levels down from a king Matthew's use of king here though speaks to how Herod and we have other records of this Herod would require others to address him as king especially at his birthday you will address me as king he had quite a high view of himself And people would do that. They would do that to flatter him, to gain favor. Now, despite his fear, we do know from Mark that Herod was fascinated by John. Not for the right reasons, but he was fascinated. Even says he enjoyed listening to him. He was pleasured by listening to him. However, and there's an important point to be observed here, this enjoyment was purely fleshly. He ignored the message, but enjoyed the performance. It was clear that John was a prophet and Herod liked, or at least was amused when he would teach and preach. Herod's enjoyment of John then is no different than his enjoyment of Herodias' daughter. That enjoyment that Mark describes is no different than the enjoyment he has of Herodias' daughter because both of them were satisfying his fleshly desire to be pleased, to be entertained be amused thinking further about Herod's enjoyment of John we can see that there is really no difference moving forward 2,000 years it's persons who attend church week after week or lift, listen to sermon after sermon throughout the week because they like a certain preacher or because it makes them feel good a lot of people attend church or listen to preaching because it scratches a religious itch The pews and chairs of churches are filled with persons who are tending merely to be satisfied by their fleshly desires. Now, the power of God and the word of God can absolutely work in the hearts and minds of persons like this to transform them. In fact, we would welcome any who would come and hear the word preached. But there is a warning here from Herod's example by implication that cuts two ways. First, if you are here this morning to be entertained, and you do not know Christ as your Savior, have never confessed and repented of your sin and trusted the work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection to save you from the punishment of your sin, which is hell, then like Herod, you are bringing greater judgment and condemnation on yourself. You see, every time Herod would have John come and entertain him, he would bring greater and greater and greater judgment upon himself. And if you're here this morning not knowing Christ as your Savior, that's exactly what you are doing. And the only way out from under this judgment that you are incurring is by turning to Christ who gave himself for you, who offered up his body, taking on himself all of the sin of mankind, all of the punishment that was due you and me so that the wrath of the Father would fall on him instead of you. If you have never understood this, if you have never repented of your sin, find me afterwards. Call out to the Lord. Repent. But there's another warning that cuts the other direction. There are many who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ, who hear teaching, who hear preaching, who enjoy getting together. We enjoy that, but we don't follow through with the obedience. We don't follow through in cultivating that love for God. That love which, as John, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, tells us in 1 John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That obedience is intimately tied to a love for God. As we've said before, obedience helps to stir the fires of our affection toward God. But when we come to be entertained, to be amused, to just enjoy the fellowship, we incur judgment. Did you know that? Did you know that even believers are judged? Now, it's not the judgment of heaven or hell. That has been secured for you, as we sang, blessed assurance. But even believers will be judged. We will give an account for all of our works, all that we have done, and all that we have done with what we have. The parable of the talents is not just a fun story. It has eternal ramifications. Our gathering together must be driven by a desire to love Christ, to glorify God. The gathering together and the study and the teaching of God's word must never be about me and satisfying my fleshly desires or my perceived desires. Now I have a real need that I need to cultivate which is a need to grow in my love for God and that is what I should be satisfying. I mean, do you have real needs? Absolutely. Will they be met? Often. But they are to be the byproduct of faithful worship, service, and love for God. We attend church, we gather together as a body, not because It brings us joy, although that's a wonderful byproduct. We gather together regardless of what we feel like because it brings God joy and it helps to stir our love for Him and to show Him our love for Him. Our prioritization of gathering together and worshiping together, prioritizing that for the love of God. We need to work on cultivating that love and a pursuit of God. And when we do that, all those other things, all the other, I'll call it felt needs in your life, those will be added in time, but that's not what you focus on. See, God knows what our real needs are and our real desires are. What we find is as we, as we turn our affections on him, so many of those things that we wanted really just begin to pass away. We forget about them. In light of the, the growing brightness of his glory and grace. The scene transitions quickly to the carrying out of Herod's orders. Verses 10 through 11, Jewish law forbade executing a person without a trial and beheading was also not a Jewish form of execution but at this point Herod is far past expectations, far past what is the norm. At this point, Herod feared those in attendance more than any custom, even more than any law, and wanted to get this over quickly. Really foreshadowing the mock trial and the immoral execution of Jesus, John, his forerunner, is unceremoniously beheaded in prison and his head was delivered while the party continued. Greco-Roman banquets usually had separate dining halls for men and women, so Salome, it says, took the head of John the Baptist to her mother Herodias, who is likely in an adjoining room, entertaining the women guests at the banquet. About 10 to 15 years after the death of John the Baptist, history tells us that Fulvia, the wife of Mark Antony, before he married Cleopatra, had the famous orator, writer, and statesman Cicero beheaded, and had his head brought to her. When it arrived, she pulled out his tongue and stuck a golden hairpin in it to mock him in his death for having spoken out against her and her marriage to Mark Antony. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, says that Herodias did the exact same thing with John the Baptist, trying to mock him in his death for having spoken out against her marriage to Herod Antipas. While it's not recorded in scripture, that would certainly fit with the character of Herodias who desired to mock a dead John the Baptist. As Osborne notes, the death of John the Baptist continues the tradition of a nation that murders its own prophets and foreshadows the death of Jesus himself at the hands of the nation. It also reiterates what we have seen that all of God's people can expect persecution and opposition, at times even unto death. That was the expectation of every one of Jesus' apostles as we looked at him when he sent them out in Matthew 10. We really know nothing of the final moments of John from John's standpoint, but you have to wonder what impact John's prison ministry and attitude towards the guards had, including his comportment at the time of his death imagine if this is a feast going into the evening he may have been asleep roused from his sleep only to be beheaded moments later at a minimum Herod's guards readily turned over John's body to, G- to his disciples in verse 12 and that's what we find in verse 12 the disciples of John coming to collect the body of Je- John and to bury it and then they go and seek out Jesus Matthew uses the report of the disciples to Jesus as a way of bracketing and closing out this parenthetical description of John's death. He opened with Herod hearing a report, and he closes with Jesus hearing a report. But it also further ties together John and Jesus by showing the positive view the disciples of John had toward Jesus. Likely implying that many, if not all of them, now transition their discipleship from John to Jesus. This narrative provided here is a, again, is a, something of a parenthetical, serves to reinforce in a vivid way not only the testimony of John and his ministry as a forerunner to Christ and the spirit and power of Elijah, but it also serves to highlight and to reinforce Jesus' warnings from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in this one short story, we see exactly why Jesus warned against the evils of lust, divorce, and giving of oaths in the Sermon on the Mount. It illustrates the real-world effects of not repenting of one's sin, but instead indulging and gratifying them, being driven by the fear of man. By contrast, John did not fear Herod, Herodias, or death itself, His only concern was faithfully obeying and serving Christ. John's example compared with Herod who feared man is the one we should seek to follow. Whether it be giving in to peer pressure or fear of what others might think, our only concern should be what God thinks of us. When you go to make a decision, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Now there's rarely going to be chapter and verse on what you should do and what decision you should make. And yet there's much that we can apply to our decision-making that is chapter and verse specific. How does it glorify God? Does it allow me to be honorable, trustworthy? Does it, am I tempted to sin in what I do? Does this job, does this situation, does it have the potential of tempting others to sin? Does it bring the greatest glory to God? Does it allow me to serve and to minister to others? Does it restrict my service to God? These are the types of questions we need to be asking. What we don't want to be doing is allowing the questions of what do others think? What does so and so think factor into this? It's not to ignore sound counsel and sound wisdom, but you know the difference from fearing man versus seeking those who can provide sound counsel that often forces you to encounter those fears. This entire passage makes Jesus' words from Matthew ten twenty eight all the more necessary. Where he writes and says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So the question as we close out is Who do you fear? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder from both the life and the death of John the Baptist. Father, it is encouraging, it's also humbling, and Father, it's somewhat rebuking. Father, I confess that there are times and places where I have acted more out of the fear of man and what others think than first putting thought into what you care about, what brings you the greatest honor and glory. Father, I pray that you'll help me and all those in this room to fear you first and foremost, to grow in our understanding of who you are so that we might rightly fear you, not as some capricious despot who's fickle and whose opinion changes, but as a God who is constant, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for the consistency we find of your character throughout scripture, Old and New Testament alike. We thank you for the example of John the Baptist. But more importantly, we thank you for who he pointed to and who he heralded. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death, which paid the penalty for our sin, and his resurrection, which secured for us the hope of eternity with you. Amen.